We're really glad you joined us today. We hope that you're doing well. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And we're really glad that you joined us today as we are continuing our investigation into the four faces of Jesus. And today we're looking at Jesus in a way that he sees and speaks of himself constantly throughout the New Testament. In Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, passage after passage. Matthew 8, 29, 6, 10, 23, 11, 19, 12, 8, 32, and 40, uh, among others. Mark 2, 10, 28, 31, 38, 9, 9, 12, 31, 10, 33, 45, among others. Luke 5, 24, 6, 5, 22, 7, 34, 9, 22, 26, 44, 58, among others. John 1, 51, 3, 13, 14. John 5, 27, 6, 27, 53, 62, again, among others. In Acts 7, 56, and Revelation 1, 13, and 14, 14. All of these passages, Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man, or actually himself calls himself the Son of Man. And it's interesting that when Jesus does speak of himself throughout these Gospels, he speaks of himself primarily as the Son of Man. Maybe you might expect him to say Son of God or, or some other thing, but no, it's actually when he talks about who he is and what he's doing, he's normally using this idea of the Son of Man. So what is the Son of Man? Why would he call him that? So that where is he getting that from the Old Testament? And why would he use that as the primary way of describing who he is and what he's doing? And how should that identification of himself as the Son of Man shape how we understand Jesus, both past, present, and future, and our relationship with him? That's what we'd like to explore today as we consider Jesus the Son of Man. And it's important as we have this conversation with Jesus that we always remember that he lived and died as a first century Palestinian Jew. And that if we're going to come to an understanding of what he's saying and doing, we need to understand it as rooted in the Old Testament and in the practice of first, Juda- first century Judaism, which is often called Second Temple Period Judaism. When we look at the Old Testament the, in, to see how Son of Man is used, there's actually three primary uses. Uh, three uses. Uh, the primary, which excuse me, is as a human being. This is seen in places like Numbers twenty three nineteen, Job sixteen twenty one, twenty five six, thirty five eight, Psalm eight four, uh, which is also quoted Hebrews two six and eighty seventeen one forty four three one forty six three, also in Isaiah and Jeremiah, and Psalm eight four is a representative example. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit is, visits him visit him. There's kind of a parallelism there. Hebrew poetry works in parallelism. You have two statements that are uh, aligned with each other in a parallel form, and they can either be a contrast, they can be an emphasis, or many times it's just a way of saying a similar thing twice. And so, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? So, man, son of man, that's a parallelism there. And there's no real distinction in meaning, because a, 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 a son of a man is a human being. Uh, because he is born of a man and of a woman. And we, we saw this, we talked about Son of God at previous time, that Son of indicates a relationship in Hebrew. Uh, son of, uh, David, Son of Jesse. That, that's an actual father-son relationship. Uh, but Eli, Son of Samuel. Uh, Eli, excuse me, calls Samuel his son, even though Samuel was not biologically his son. If you were 30 years old, you would be called in Hebrew the son of 30 years. All of the children of Israel are called sons of Israel. The Ammonites are the sons of Ammon in Numbers 21-24. Uh, as well. And so, son of sometimes refers to that 
father-son relationship or just a, a lineage or a connection. And so a son of man is a human being, a person born of human parents. Uh, Yahweh in the Old Testament calls two specific prophets son of man, especially Ezekiel. Ezekiel throughout, in fact, pretty much almost every chapter, second verse, uh, is is uh, calling Ezekiel the son of man when he... When Yahweh spoke to Ezekiel, called him son of man to this, son of man do that, son of man say this. Daniel also in Daniel 8, 17 is called a son of man. And just again, a way of talking to him as a human being, uh, one that God is speaking to directly. But the one that is of great importance to us comes from Daniel chapter 7. That's the third use. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is shown a vision of a world empires as a series of beasts. And the fourth beast is the most fearful. And at that time, he sees, uh, in verse 9, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. That's coming out of that fourth terrifying beast. And I looked, the beast was killed and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, this vision that Daniel sees, he sees the Ancient of Days, who is the Father's God, and before him is brought this one like a son of man, and he is given this everlasting dominion, and has conquered these beasts. And so by the first century, somebody was a son of man, you could use that as a way of talking about a human being, certainly. But to call a person the son of man is without any need for further explanation to be invoking that vision that Daniel saw, that this is the son of man, the one that God had promised, the one who would receive an everlasting dominion, a way of talking about the Messiah. That's the primary impetus that is being used when you talk about the son of man. Never losing that idea that he is a human being, of course. It is still rooted in the meaning of the term. But it really refers to that one particular human, that son of man, that would receive that everlasting kingdom and that this was associated with the Messiah by the first century. So we see that there's a messianic overtone to it. So it is a way of talking about being a Messiah, but it's very interesting and striking that Jesus does primarily speak of himself as the Son of Man, which in some translations is, is actually being translated as the human one, which is not an inappropriate translation. That is really what's being indicated by that. And so he's really emphasizing his humanity, 
And that can be striking to many of us because we, we, we're so often making the defense of his divinity. From John 1, 1 through 18, 858, 10, 30, uh, Colossians chapter 1 and 2, Hebrews 1, 3, 1 Peter 1, 2. And we spent a lot of time talking about that when we talked about Jesus as the Son of God. And that all remains true. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. But he's in the flesh. He is human. And he speaks of himself primarily as the human one, as the Son of Man. And that is really the scandal of the Incarnation. The idea that God is taking on flesh and the experiences of flesh. That he was tempted at all points like we were, yet without sin in Hebrews 4.15. In 5.7-9, that he learned obedience to the things that he suffered. To the point where in Romans 8.3, Paul can say that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not that he actually was sinful, but that he came in human form. And so we can understand why throughout the centuries there's been a tendency to emphasize Jesus' divinity to the detriment of his humanity. But we need to resist that temptation because not only is he fully human as he is fully God, but he emphasizes his humanity and how he speaks of himself. And it does have a lot of important conclusions that we draw from that. As we said in Romans 3, Jesus comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. And it doesn't mean Jesus sinned, but it does elevate the dignity of humankind. There are a lot of people who get really hard on humans because of the fall. <clears throat> Some have gone to the point of saying that we have lost the image of God, now have the image of Satan. But the big problem with that is that Jesus came in the flesh. That God could become human and dwell among us. So therefore, there's some dignity still in man. That image of God has not been so lost that it cannot be seen or found again. No. And it also shows the difficulties with the doctrine of original sin because Jesus was born and came into the world and yet was without sin. Jesus is the fullness of Godhead in bodily form, the exact imprint of the divine image and character in Colossians 2.9 and Hebrews 1.3. We cannot see God the Father. He is the invisible God. But Paul says in Colossians 1.15 that, that Jesus is the icon, the image of the invisible God. That God made an image of himself. You could not make an image of God that was accurate, but he could make an image of himself and, and stamp upon that image everything we need to know about God. His love, his mercy, his justice, his kindness, his faithfulness. We can see all that defines God through Jesus' life, death, teaching, life, teachings, death, resurrection that he experienced. And as we said, Jesus experienced what he, we experienced. And that's very visceral in the Gospels. We don't see Jesus kind of floating above it all in some transcendent ether. No. In Mark 3, 5, in Luke 2, 7, he grew in 40 and 52. Uh, in John 11, 35, in 19, 8, in Hebrews 4, 15, we found out that he, he was born. He grew up like a boy grows up. He worked. He loved. He got angry. He wept. He hungered. He thirsted. He was tempted to sin, but didn't do so. And so it shows that in Christ, God is not distant from us. We can't say, God, you just don't understand. Because God does understand in Jesus, because Jesus experienced that. And that is why Jesus is the truly the Emmanuel, God with us, in Matthew 1, and 23. So yes, Jesus does embody and fulfill, and, and therefore becomes a representative type of humanity. He is the human one. He, he, in, in a way you can say he is the most human, because he most purely reflects the divine image in us. That, that aspiration we have to uh, live for the benefit of others, to, to love and to share and be kind and all those things, Jesus embodies that to the full. So you can call him the, the most human person who ever lived in that sense. 
But we we would be remiss to focus so much on the idea of Jesus as human one that that we neglect the fact that Jesus is very intentionally and consciously evoking that Danielic son of man in Daniel 7 when he calls himself that. Because if you're going around in first century Israel calling yourself the son of man, you don't just mean, oh, by the way, I'm just saying I'm human. No, you don't mean that at all. Everybody who looked forward to the rule of God knew exactly what would have been meant by somebody calling himself the son of man. That, that that means that they are associated with that one like a son of man who would receive the eternal dominion in Daniel chapter 7. And, and we can see this in many of the ways that Jesus talks about himself as the son of man, but, but certainly in terms of perhaps a quote-unquote more eschatological uses, in terms of last days in various forms. There's a lot of times where he'll talk about the coming of the son of man. An example might be in Matthew 19:28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Um, in Luke 18.8, 8, uh, when the Son of Man comes back, will he find faith on the earth? He calls out the Son of Man at that moment. Also in John 151 and also in 6.62. And there's a, a constant threat in the Gospels, especially seen in Matthew 24, where Jesus the destruction of Jerusalem in, in seventy, uh, the year seventy, is a vindication of Jesus as the Son of Man, is, is, uh, of G- and what he prophesied. We'll talk more about that in another time. But it's interesting that it's called a coming of the Son of Man in, in Matthew twenty-four, and in verse thirty, for instance. Uh, then the then there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Exactly uh, that imagery from Daniel chapter seven, and we're told that all of that. Um, will happen in that generation in verse 34. So all of that was still to happen in that generation around the destruction of Jerusalem. But it's also not just about that that time right there. It's also with the final judgment. We see this in many passages, but for instance, in Matthew 25, 31, uh, when Jesus is showing this final judgment scene, what does he say? When the Son of Man comes in his glory. Not the Son of God, not prophet or king, not Christ, not high priest. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, that's the human one. That's the way He talks about Himself in the final coming. It's the way He talks about Himself being vindicated in the year 70. It's the way He's talking about Himself in the present. Always rooting it as the human one. And and the subtext of what Daniel, Daniel 7 that he is this one like a son of man who will receive this kingdom, it is no longer subtext when you get to Matthew chapter 26 and you get to the accusations of the high priest. He's in this trial, and the high priest says to him in verse 63, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So we, we talk about the Son of God and, and all that kingly and messianic associations. So how does Jesus respond to verse 64? You have said so. I mean that because when you ask a question in Greek, you're saying the statement. You're just asking it question form, which is more of just a voice inflection than an actual question mark. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he he doesn't deny that he's the Son of God, but, but then he goes and he speaks about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, which is exactly that scene you saw in Daniel chapter seven. And of course, the high priest tears his robe. That that's blasphemy that he deserves death, that he's calling himself this one like a son of man. And it's very interesting. 
that you fast forward uh, after his death, after his resurrection, after uh, the day of Pentecost, and you get to Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is being stoned, about to be stoned, uh, because it's the same Sanhedrin is condemning him that condemned Jesus. Uh, he sees this scene and he cries out in verse 56. And behold, I and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Son of Man. So he sees us. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus ascended. Jesus is back in heaven. But he sees the Son of Man. He sees this image from Daniel 7 fulfilled. So what was the accusation? What Jesus confesses about himself becomes the reality. And so Jesus is very consciously styling himself as this Danielic Son of Man. And that's the primary way he wants to speak of himself. That's the primary way he wants people to understand who he is in terms of the one like a son of man that is seen in Daniel's vision. And there's a very good reason for this. Because that picture most specifically lays out how he obtains his kingdom. Okay? Um, Jesus knows how everything plays out. By the time they write their gospel, so do the evangelists. Uh, but, of course, it's not the order that's expected by the Jews, or quite frankly, by anybody. When we think about somebody who's going to rule, we think of somebody being born and growing up and at some point taking over the rule and then dying. Uh, but that's not, of course, the way that Jesus did it. Jesus lives, is born, lives, dies, is raised again, ascends to the Father, and then receives power. And, of course, what is that scene in Daniel 7? The one like a son of man is presented before the Ancient of Days, and there is where he is granted this everlasting dominion. It's in Daniel's vision that you have the time frame set in a way that you don't see in Isaiah, you don't see in Moses, you don't see in anywhere else. It's right there in Daniel 7. And we also need to be very clear that it's not for nothing that Daniel sees one like a son of man. Daniel did not see one like a son of God or son of the gods. Like he did, like uh, Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel chapter three, he didn't see God the Word. He didn't. He saw one like a son of man. And again, this isn't a denial of Jesus, son of God, or that he is not God the Word. But it's really to sharpen our focus to get us to think: Why does Daniel see what he sees? Okay. And let's think about it for a second. Jesus as a son of God and God the Son is the Word, is God in John one and Colossians two nine. But can God die? No, God does not die. And if God can't die, you can't raise God from the dead, because he couldn't die, so as to be raised from the dead. So, when Jesus, who is God in the flesh, is on the cross, when his cries out and his spirit is released, does this God part die? No. The God part is all separated from the body. For three days. Until the third day, when it returns to the body, and the body is transformed in the resurrection. And so, since it is based upon his death and resurrection that Jesus has granted his kingdom, we see this in Romans 1 4, in Matthew 28, Luke 24, actually, all these other passages, and many others. Um, in Hebrews especially, that Jesus is declared the Son of God son in power through the resurrection. Um, you can't leave the human part out. Because it's the human part 
the humanity that experienced the death and resurrection and the transformation that came with that resurrection. And so that is why Daniel sees one like a son of man being presented before the Ancient of Days. He died and he was raised again, which allows him to now rule as Lord from heaven. Son of God, sure, God in the flesh, sure, but still human, still in the flesh. Transformed for immortality, no doubt, First 1 Corinthians 15, eh, there's no doubt about that at all. But still, nonetheless, human. And so, I mean, if he lost his humanity, he could no longer be the one like a son of man, because he's no longer like a son of man, he's just like God. So we need to be clear and understand what God has revealed in Scripture, because it's very important for us to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. And so his Jesus' self-identification as Danielic Son of Man highlights his humanity, and it actually best defines what God is doing through him from beginning to end. He was to be presented before the Ancient of Days in order to obtain that eternal kingdom dominion, but he can only get that kingdom through his life, its ministry, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and finally his ascension up in heaven. In Matthew 20, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, Hebrews 9, and many other passages. So he's the Son of God, and fully God, but also the Son of Man, and fully human in this trans-physical resurrection body. And in that position, he's able to continually serve as a high priest in order of Melchizedek, continually the mediator between God and man, as the man Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy 2, 5. Because he stands between God and humanity, taking on both. Uh, he also is continually Lord of heaven and earth and able to continually identify with the temptations and suffering of mankind as we see in Hebrews 4, 5, 1 Timothy 2, 5 as mentioned in 1 John 3, 1 through 3. And we look in Revelation. We've looked at Revelation 4 and Revelation 1, 12 through 18. And especially now that we read Daniel 7, we can see, well, when John turns around, he sees uh, this one, this person, and he sees uh, all of this description that he has of this this uh, vision that he sees uh, of the one speaking to him, where he has a long robe, a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow, his eyes were a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze or fine in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and from his face was shite, like the sun shining in full strength. It sounds a lot like the Ancient of Days, back in Daniel 7. But he said in verse 13 before that, that he was one like a son of man. And so he has the characteristics of the Ancient of Days as God in the flesh, but he's still one like a son of man. Even in that vision that John has in Revelation chapter 1. So he is still the God-man. Fully God and fully human. So as the first century draws to a close, the Apostle John speaks quite strongly against the, these people who are developing. We call them docetists and, and or Gnostics. They thought that Jesus only seemed to be human, uh, actually was, was never really human. They wanted to dehumanize Jesus and over-spiritualize him. And, and John saw where that ended. Uh, if he's not human, he didn't die. If he's not human and didn't die, he couldn't be raised from the dead. And Christianity is a joke. And this idea that Jesus is the Incarnation... God in the flesh. It was a stumbling block to Jews because that man would claim to be God. But to the Greeks it was following the idea that God would become a man. That's what Paul's going after in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And what, the reason that's important is that there's a lot of the same temptations that exist to this day. 
the same temptations for which the Dulcetists and the Gnostics fell. Because the Incarnation is uncomfortable in its implications. It's easy for us to think of Jesus as the Son of God, emphasizes divinity. But it's very easy when we do that to leave little room for Jesus as the Son of Man. If you look at Jesus only as Son of God, it's easy to feel remote from Jesus. And it's also easy to take that conflict between the flesh and the spirit too far and make the flesh out to be completely evil and imagine the best future involves getting away from the body. But Jesus is the Son of Man as much as he is the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God Son of, and God the Son, took on flesh. Flesh decays and is corruptible, but it's not intrinsically evil and can be transformed and will be transformed in the final day. Jesus self-identified as the Son of Man because of Daniel 7, 13 and 14, which, while he was in his ministry, looked forward to his ascension and receiving his kingdom there. And so, in doing that from the beginning of his ministry until even after his ministry, and looking forward to the time where he's going to return again, Jesus is affirming that it's the resurrection that is the hope and the ultimate vindication of the believer and the victory over the enemy. Because Jesus sits at the right hand of the seat of power as the Son of Man only in the resurrection and after the ascension in Matthew 26 and Acts 7. And as the Son of Man, he was vindicated when everything he spoke over Jerusalem uh, came to pass in the year 70, just like it had been laid out in Daniel chapter 9 in Matthew 24. And that's why it's not for nothing that it's one like a Son of Man who is rendering judgment upon the beast of Revelation 13 in the picture of Revelation 14, 14. It's Jesus who is getting glory over the Roman Empire. And he demonstrates the reach of his kingdom over peoples and languages and nations, which is exactly what Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7. That you'd have all these world empires, maybe, but they were going to tremble before the kingdom of the one like a son of man. Of course, we know that ultimately all those empires fade away and fell apart. But Christianity, the following Jesus as the one like a son of man in his kingdom, continues to this day. But we can't forget that in all of this, the way Jesus talks about himself and the way others talk about him, that he obtains his kingdom as one like a son of man. He doesn't obtain it only as a son of God or God the Son, because his divine nature is, cannot, be, cannot die or be raised. His humanity doesn't become optional after his resurrection. As a son of man, Jesus is not a distant master, but one very near to us, who has experienced everything we've experienced, and able to be our high priest and our mediator and our Lord and King at the right hand of power. Fully God, yes, but still fully human. And as the Son of Man, Jesus sustains our hope of resurrection, that Jesus died was raised again in power, and that he has promised as the Son of Man to return, and the day he returns, we will obtain our resurrection and our transformation and to share in his glory forever. In Matthew 16, 27, 25, 31, and 1 Corinthians 15. Now, we humans have never fully understood the Incarnation, and we never will. And the idea that God is, that Jesus is still human is really hard for us to wrap our heads around with the idea that he is in heaven. But when John sees him in Revelation 1, it's one like a son of man in the terms of the Ancient of Days. How can the one like a son of man be seen in terms of the Ancient of Days when there are two different characters in Daniel? That's just an illustration. It's imagery. And John puts them together to show the unity of God, but that you still have Jesus as a son of man. And so he is a son of God, but he's a son of man. He spoke as a prophet. 
Absolutely. And also, was the Messiah that was expected, the king expected for Israel. And so we do well to remember that Jesus understood himself as the Son of Man during his life and in his resurrection. And we need to affirm not just the divinity of Jesus, but his humanity as well. And therefore we need to maintain trust in Jesus, the Son of Man, so as to obtain eternal life through him. And we're again so glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you've been encouraged and given a lot of things to think about in this lesson. If any questions about anything we've talked about, if maybe you'd like to learn how to follow Jesus, the Son of Man, to serve Him as Lord, maybe you have a prayer request, maybe you need to talk about something, please feel free to contact me through my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Or you can check us out online at venisertochrist.org. We're also on social media, Google+, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Meetup, mostly at Venice Church. We again thank you. Have a great day.